Okay, can everybody hear me all right? Sounds sure loud up here. Um, I'm going to give you two parts to Richard Skolnick's bio. One is the official part, um, and that is that Richard is the former director of health, nutrition, and population for South Asia at the World Bank, or at least was the former, and Mega still is the director. <clears throat> He was a lecturer in global health at George Washington University and at Yale. And that's where he still holds an appointment at Yale. And he was the executive director of the Harvard AIDS treatment program for three countries in Africa. Richard is also the instructor for the Yale Coursera courses, uh, the one particularly on essentials of global health and he's the author of Global Health 101, which is now in its fourth edition, and on which he seems to be constantly working on the next edition. <coughs> uh, never knew how much work textbooks involved until knowing Richard. On the informal side, Richard and I got to be friends four or five years ago, and um, he agreed to generously serve on our COVID safety team, bringing all of his expertise with epidemics in other countries, <clears throat> and um, met with us many, many times over the three years. Um, you probably saw a good number of his articles in the paper where he wrote pieces. Uh, there were COVID updates um, during the pandemic, and. Um, basically was trying to help local people stay safer and to save lives in, in our county. And I think it probably made a really substantial difference. Um, he leaned on the New Mexico Department of Health to enact sound approaches on their level, uh, sounder approaches maybe I should say. <laughs> and um, now he often advocates for a smart policies in the public school system regarding their policies on how to handle infections in students in ways that balance multiple important goals. So Richard's worn a lot of hats in this community in the short number of years he's been here and obviously as a guy who dives in, which is warm to my heart. <laughs> so Richard, welcome. We appreciate having you. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, thank, thank you very much. Uh, I'm extremely honored to uh, have been invited to join you today, as I was very honored to serve on the COVID Safety Committee. And I've been uh, very moved and touched by the approach that the church took toward COVID, which was, I think, more than most houses of worship grounded on a principled basis and on the basis of ethical principles as well in a way I really haven't seen very much of. So I have a special affection um, for your church, though I don't belong to it, and I'm uh, deeply honored to be here today. Um, since, since it's being taped, I'm gonna make some formal remarks. Um, uh, we'll use the microphone, but uh, I will try to be as informal and sensitive to the to the, to the size of the group uh, as possible. Uh, Dr. Taylor was kind enough to ask me to give a, make some remarks on why we should care about global health. So by the time you leave uh, this afternoon, 
which shouldn't be too long, don't worry. Uh, I hope you'll have a better sense of what we mean when we talk about global health, uh, why we should all care about global health, and some measures that we could take both individually and collectively to make the world a better place. Since we're all so steeped in COVID, I'm going to relate some of my remarks in particular uh, to COVID and hope that they can highlight uh, some of the comments I'm going to make. I'm gonna speak for a little less probably than 30 minutes to be followed by at least 15 minutes of discussion, I hope. Uh, I can stay as long as you like, especially if there's food left. <laughs> and uh, I'm very, I'd be very happy to speak with um, you uh, as part of this session or if you'd like you know, outside uh, afterwards. And, uh, everyone knows where to find me, and you're always more than welcome to get in touch if you think there are topics of mutual interest or concern which you'd like to explore further. Um, let me begin by very simply saying, when I talk about global health, what is it? So in the simplest terms, and people can argue about this, I don't, but in the simplest of terms, we talk about global health, we're talking about a field of research, study, and practice that focuses on public health from a global perspective, focuses on issues of global interdependence in health, such as disease surveillance. It focuses on areas requiring uh, global sharing of information, such as scientific and clinical discovery. And it focuses on areas beyond the competence or the financial ability of any one country, particularly, let's say, low and middle income countries, like how will Morocco on its own be able to deal with the after effects of the earthquake that just occurred? How will Pakistan, how could Pakistan have coped with the terrible earthquake that occurred some years ago? So, so and these issues relate to natural disasters, humanitarian emergencies, drug development, vaccine development, et cetera. Um, given my appreciation for the principal basis on which your COVID safety committee worked, I wanted to, to also say, uh, before I go into uh, some additional remarks, uh, what are we after? You know, what's the end game? Uh, why are you here? Why should you care about global health? Um, what do we seek? In what ways do we want to make the world a better place? And I wanted to suggest that there are three kind of principled approaches, one at a broad level, one at the level of global health in particular, and the third at the level of health systems that need to underpin uh, our concerns for the health of everyone, everywhere, and, the, and global health as we're gonna talk about it. At the broader level, I wanna suggest to you um, the work of Amartya Sen, who is a Nobel Prize winning economist slash philosopher. Um, and Professor Sen says, and I'm summarizing in two lines, a 600 page book that's rather complicated, but Professor Sen told me personally he thought I did a pretty good job of it. Professor Sen has suggested in his writing that the role of governments must be to ensure that all people in the fairest possible way have a chance to be all that they can be. And I'm gonna repeat that because it's so central to my own uh, interests in life, that all people, that the role of governments is to ensure that all people, wherever they live, is to have uh, an equal opportunity, the fairest possible opportunity to fulfill their human potential and be all that they can be. Now within that context, and I think, again, I think it's really important to have some sense, especially if you're thinking about this um, as members of the church as well as, as uh, people concerned about the world more generally. When we talk about global health, 
I want to suggest to you that the end game is ensuring the best possible health of as many people on the planet as possible in the fairest and most cost-effective ways. In the, in the simplest sense, what we're after, and I'm sorry that Galen Gisler's not here, but in the simplest, since he lived in Norway for a long time, uh, in the simplest sense, what we're after is Norway. You know, is it okay for Liberians to live on average 60 years while Norwegians live to almost 90? You know, is it okay for people in uh, Niger to live not much more than 60 years on average when people in, uh, in Sweden or Denmark or the Netherlands can live to their late 80s? I want to suggest to you that our goal as, uh, as uh, people concerned about humanity must be for everybody everywhere to live as long and healthy a life as possible. Uh, hopefully with as little disability as possible, and then to be crude, to drop dead suddenly in the middle of the night as they approach you know, their late 80s so they don't provide any burden to the taxpayer or to their, um, or to their family. I used to get this as a final exam question, by the way. What do you want from me? How long should I live and in what state? But I think that's, it's fundamental to ground our, what we're gonna talk about in that notion. And finally, when it comes to the role of health systems, the goal is very similar, to maximize the health of your people in the fastest possible way, at least cost as fairly as possible. Wouldn't we love to see a country in which, for example, all of our people live kind of like the Norwegians do? And the US, uh, as I'm sure you know, um, is, quite, is quite far from that. I'm gonna be, by the way, as fact-based and evidence-based as possible. If I make a, any comments that are opinions, I will try immediately to identify them as opinions. When I taught, um, I offered a, not that everybody would wanna have dinner with me, but I offered my students a free dinner every night for a week if I ever gave an opinion uh, that wasn't evidence-based without making clear to the class that it was my opinion. So let's get on then with the, the core, but again, I hope as I make these remarks, you'll put them in the context of what, how we want humanity to look if we could. Um, the place of global health in that, the place of health systems in achieving it. I'm gonna to suggest to you that there are at least six reasons, and there are probably more, why you should care about global health. First, um, I wanna tell you that the health of, and I don't mean to be patronizing, you know much of this, so if I say I wanna tell you, please, um, I know you understand the context within which I'm saying that. The health of anyone anywhere is the health of everyone everywhere, and I'm gonna say that again. First reason is the health of anyone anywhere is the health of everyone everywhere. If you didn't believe that before COVID, it was a shame, but certainly COVID, which spread around the world in weeks, should have helped to convince you that at least when we're talking about communicable diseases, the health of anyone anywhere is the health of, uh, the health of anyone anywhere is the health of everyone everywhere. But it's the same when you look back and think about HIV um, when it first began and in the short amount of time it took for that to spread around the world. Uh, the same is true, for example, of uh, monkeypox, or now called mpox. Uh, and I wanna make one, one comment. It's, I think it's based on evidence, but it's an opinion, um, which I'd be happy to explore with you in, in the question and answer session. Monkeypox has, um, is a wonderful example of a colossal global failure on the global health side. This was a disease that was largely confined to a small geographic area in Africa. And the failure of the world to pay attention to it, 
to enable the development of vaccines or therapeutics and messaging that could reduce the spread of monkeypox in a confined geographic area, ultimately led to the world having to pay about a billion times more as this used to be localized disease spread. This, there can't be a better example for some of what I'm gonna talk about than this failure on um, Mpox. There are also ethical reasons why you um, should care about global health. Uh, this is a church, I think it's especially important that I mention them, but uh, if I, you don't have to raise your hand, but are you okay ethically with the continuing high rates of undernutrition among so many children in the world? Are you okay ethically with 300,000 women a year dying of pregnancy-related causes in the world, most of which are preventable, the vast overwhelming majority of which are preventable? Are you okay ethically that pregnancy can be a death sentence for poor women in the poorest countries? Are you okay ethically with the idea that a poor woman in Afghanistan has a risk of dying in pregnancy that's between two and 300 times the risk that a Swedish woman uh, faces of dying in pregnancy? Are you okay ethically with the idea that the high-income countries bought up almost all the COVID vaccines and left the low-income countries with a much smaller allocation than they needed. Uh, and we could talk about whether it made sense to do that, even from a, from a public health point of view. Uh, I would suggest you there, and we could go on and on and on, um, but there are a range of ethical reasons why I think it's fundamental that we, that we um, be concerned with global health. Um, again, COVID highlighted this in a way that should not have been necessary but there are profound links between health, education, poverty, and the economy. Um, nutrition and good health are fundamental to whether or not kids can go to school, whether or not they thrive in school, whether or not they can gain prospects for productive employment. It's in our interest um, for Nigeria to eventually look like Singapore. Because when that happens, Nigeria will be buying a lot more American products and employing, uh, employing a lot more American people than they're able to do with their purchases of American products and their links with us now. Uh, and I don't need to tell you that when we think about the links between health, nutrition, health, education, poverty, and employment, um, uh, we face many similar issues in New Mexico and the United States. These are universal. It's just a question of their degrees. COVID shown an unbelievably bright light on the economic impact of health issues. Kids got sick, uh, parents stayed home uh, to take care of their kids, Everybody had medical bills. Some parts of the American economy couldn't function for lost workers. Some parts couldn't function because they were shut down. More than 1.1 million people in the United States died with their attendant economic uh, and social uh, consequences. And the latest estimates are that by the end of this year, the United States will have lost $14 trillion in economic output as a result of COVID. Now, you don't need to have studied economics to know that if the losses are gonna be 14 trillion, if we had invested 13.9 trillion to prevent those losses, it would have paid a positive rate of return, a higher rate of return than most of us got in our bank accounts in the last so many years. And yet I know even in discussions in Los Alamos with some of my friends, uh, this seems, they don't, they don't understand what I'm suggesting. They don't understand why I believe it's so important for us to invest wisely in uh, effective and efficient public health measures. I, I said before the need for global cooperation is also really uh, fundamental. 
No country is an island. Uh, we all depend on cooperation and development, manufacturing, distribution of tests, drugs, surveillance, etc. One of the biggest mistakes in America's response to the COVID outbreak, as you know, was at the beginning, as, as I'm sure many of you know, at the beginning there were test kits um, that had been developed in Germany that the World Health Organization was making available to the world. The U.S. turned them down. CDC produced its own test kits. They didn't work. There was a substantial lag then before we could test properly in the United States. And you could go read about what that lag meant for delays in addressing COVID in the United States and the number of cases that uh, came about as a result of those delays. Lionel, as many of you know, has been at the forefront of a lot of disease surveillance on COVID and a lot of surveillance on variants, but so has South Africa. Uh, and we're living in a world in which there are centers of scientific and public health excellence all over, and we need to share with each other and learn from each other if we're going to make the world a better place. Uh, climate change is also another reason to listen. If, if, if you don't want to worry about climate change for its own sake, you should worry about climate change for the sake of global health. Uh, no one, I think, knows exactly what the impact of climate change will be uh, on, on health. And it will almost certainly vary by where you live. You know, the Canadians may be able to grow summer vegetables in the near future. But at the same time, we might have dengue, chikungunya, uh, and a number of other vector-borne illnesses in New Mexico that we have only in, in uh, we, don't, we don't have dengue or chikungunya yet here. Uh, there is now in Florida. Um, there's indigenous malaria now in a few states in the United States. Um, so I think what we can certainly look forward to is diseases emerging and re-emerging in places where they didn't exist or barely existed before as different places uh, heat up and become more susceptible to um, diseases spread, for example, by mosquitoes. In addition, and this summer is made clear all over the world, there'll be excess deaths from heat-related causes, particularly among people, you know, I won't point it, my age. <laughs> uh, and, um, and it looks like there'll be excess deaths, more deaths as well from natural disasters. Uh, in addition, um, almost certainly there'll be climate migrants, and we don't know what the effect of climate migration will be um, on, um, on population health, either in the giving country or the receiving country. Finally, I wanna suggest to you that self-interest is a really good reason. Um, if you believe even a part of what I've said, and if you believe even a part of the idea that the health of anyone anywhere is the health of everyone everywhere, then clearly it's in your self-interest and my self-interest to ensure that um, people in Nigeria don't get diseases that can spread to us, that people in Canada don't get them, that people in the Caribbean don't get them. So even if you had no other concerns, uh, it's in our self-interest, individually and collectively, to be sure that the world stays as healthy as possible. Now, you could say, well, how is the world done? You know, we read about development assistance and foreign aid, and we read about a lot of these things being useless pits where nothing good has happened and nothing good can happen in the future. Uh, I want to suggest to you this is not the case for global health. We're looking here at an area in which there's been enormous uh, progress. Um, smallpox was eradicated, as you know, the only human disease eradicated. There's one animal disease that's been eradicated, uh, but smallpox was eradicated. A guinea worm, I think, last year in the world, partly thanks, as you probably know, to the work of President Carter, the work that he's led so assiduously. Um, there, I think there were 13 cases of guinea worm in the world last year in humans. 
Polio, so far this year in Afghanistan and Pakistan, the last two reservoirs, more or less of, of wild polio virus. There's only seven wild cases of wild polio virus. Um, not to mention the fact that at least until COVID, never before people lived so long, never before have there been so few child deaths, kids under five, never before have so many children been vaccinated against the important childhood diseases, never before have so few people died of malaria, and not since the advent of HIV have there been so few deaths from HIV. So there's an enormous amount of progress, and you'd be happy to know, and we can talk about this, that some of this stems from uh, collective work uh, across countries and from international organizations like the Global Fund or the Global Alliance for Vaccines or the Global Polio Eradication Initiative or the work of the Carter Center on, and others on guinea worm. On the other hand, you wouldn't be here today and I wouldn't be in this business if there wasn't an, a gigantic and unacceptable unfinished agenda. So even as there's been all this progress, there's still um, about five million under five children who die in the world every year. Five million children die every year in the world before their fifth birthday. Um, almost all of these deaths, of course, are preventable. There's still 11 million new um, people newly infected with active tuberculosis disease every year. There's still one, more than one and a half million people a year who die of tuberculosis. Um, been enormous progress against HIV, and yet there's still about 600,000 people a year dying of HIV and more than one, about 1.3 million new infections. Uh, malaria, there's been really great progress in the last decade, still 600,000 people a year dying of malaria. And when you think about the parasitic diseases like um, the wormy diseases, for example, uh, lymph and lymphatic filariasis, um, there's about a seventh, about an eighth now, about an eighth, about 12, 15% of all the people in the world are infected with at least one of these parasitic diseases. So there's this ginormous uh, un unfinished agenda. But I think the good news on the unfinished agenda is uh, for, for much of it, uh, in terms of the classical mat nutritional, maternal, and communicable disease agenda, we know what to do. The issue isn't figuring out what to do. The issue is really taking it to scale, especially in low and lower middle income countries which lack administrative or sometimes technical capacity as well. Um, and, and I wanna suggest to you that um, there are public health, clinical, and ethical reasons why the world needs to speed up addressing the unfinished agenda. Some of you are old enough to have been around when the polio vaccine was first licensed. I believe that was April 1st, 1955, I was six. Um, I'll ask you, is it okay that 45 plus 23, right, that 68 years after the sock vaccine was licensed, that the world is still trying to get rid of polio? I mean, I just, and what is the extent to which we're willing to accept those kinds of delays for some of these other points that I raised? Or by contrast, for all the reasons I mentioned, isn't it in everyone's interest to try to ensure that we speed up this agenda by, by leaps and bounds? Uh, and I want to say that even the most, you could say, well, what about the writings of people like Bill Easterly and Angus Deaton, who are among the greatest foreign aid skeptics, and Angus Deaton and his wife won a Nobel in economics. Uh, when you talk to them, they would say that one area where development assistance has clearly proved its worth is, is on the side of, of global health. And you can link 
many of the activities I mentioned on the good side and the progress with uh, global cooperation in a number of ways that I'd be happy to talk about more or answer questions on. So let me end by saying, what can you do? Um, one is I think it's really important that we be informed, and I think it's especially important that we be informed in an age where there's so much pressure and skepticism on public health and on, and on science. Two is I, I want to suggest, as I think your church did very well on COVID, that you ground your concerns and interests in global health in a principled and ethical uh, approach. Uh, otherwise, I think you just kind of flail and it becomes you know, hit or miss. I think if you say my concern is that everybody everywhere should have a chance in the fairest way to live the longest and healthiest possible life, and there are many reasons, including self-interest, for doing that, that's why I am concerned and that's why I will do ABC. I think that's a better basis, and I think the members of your church I've met, uh, again, I've always been moved by the principled basis they take for so many of their concerns. Three is you can support causes uh, or organizations that align themselves with trying to speed up the addressing of the unfinished agenda, which work according to these principles that I've uh, mentioned. And uh, I'm not an authority on this, but I've worked with so many of them. If anybody ever says, Richard, what's your suggestion for organizations that you feel can uh, use charitable funds in effective and efficient ways to help meet the needs of marginalized people in the poorest countries, I'd be happy to tell you my thoughts. You can support legislation uh, at all levels of government that enables better health, both domestically, locally, uh, in New Mexico, domestically, and globally. Uh, again, I remind you, and I remind you how hard it was to convince some of my friends in Los Alamos of this. For relatively, you're talking about the need for relatively, for a relatively small amount of money you could strengthen public health efforts in New Mexico. Um, and the failure to do that, we now see has potential downside economic risks that are almost incomprehensibly large. And yet, um, as I'm sure you know, what the world's done for years is go from what people call complacency to panic and back to complacency. Um, most countries were not prepared to deal with COVID. Uh, COVID hit, everybody panicked which led, unfortunately, to more economic and, um, and public health uh, nationalism rather than cooperation. Uh, and then now everybody's acting as if COVID is just kind of gone, everything is fine, uh, and we're not seeing at all the investments, the smart investments in strengthening public health that are necessary to deal both with the normal and with the next big thing that's gonna come along. Uh, and uh, if we don't invest now, we're gonna look at another $14 trillion later, and I, I don't know what it takes. I mean, I could privately tell you more, but uh, the approach that much of the world has taken to thinking about and acting on public health issues has been as perverse as any kind of investment approach I could ever possibly imagine. I, I couldn't, I can't imagine it. You can, you, you, you can elect people who understand these issues and are sensitive to them. Um, who think about evidence-based and science-based approaches to addressing them, who have a concern for disparities, for equity, for addressing, helping uh, marginalized people wherever they live to uh, lift themselves up, partly by being in better health and better nourished. And the last thing is I think you can teach your kids. You know, we're living in an age when there are a lot of comments uh, you, you, one reads constantly now about the lack of civic education. Uh, simultaneous with the desire by some people 
to force only one view of civic education down the throats of everybody else, that's an opinion. Although I think there's no question about the numbers, but, but, but that, that's an opinion. And I think it's really important um, now especially that you teach your children and your grandchildren uh, about these principles, uh, about having a concern for the health of everyone everywhere, about why that's so important uh, and why as an ethical human being um, you want to suggest as their parent or their grandparent that they learn about these things, they become sensitive to them and they do what they can, where then an individual basis, a family basis, a community basis to make the world a better place. So, um, you know, I hope these remarks have been um, somewhat enlightening and possibly minorly inspirational. Um, since it's being taped, we'll, we'll keep the mic on, but I'm completely at your disposal. Uh, if you were students of mine, I would say, if you don't ask questions, you're not getting a job. <laughs> but it looks to me like the audience is somewhat past that, those concerns, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, and usually, as Tyler could tell you, I can be a pretty funny guy. Uh, I try to be even on matters like this, but as you will appreciate, um, these are incredibly serious matters. The world doesn't need to be the way it is. Um, I can't accept that, so I spent my whole life trying to uh, address these concerns. And, um, you know, I want to encourage you to worry about that unfinished agenda uh, as well. I'm all yours. Please go ahead. Uh, yeah. So um, you're talking about investment in public health and using COVID as an example. So a successful investment to prevent COVID deaths would have resulted in a lot fewer deaths. So let's say we had 100,000 instead of 1.1 million. People would look at that and say, well, it wasn't so bad. Why did we spend so much money? So there's kind of a contradiction in, in that kind of investment. So, you know, you can, I've had this discussion many times with many of you have seen my encouragements to the county council in Los Alamos to take a principled basis to investments, including cost effectiveness and cost benefit ratio. So I'm a big believer in this. You can't use cost effectiveness analysis as the sole basis for doing things, but you can temper it with concerns for marginality, equity, disparities, et cetera. So what I would say is the kinds of investments that we need to make in public health in New Mexico and the United States that would do a better job than we did before on a whole range of public. We just had, with all due respect, um, to the many, there are a lot of very able public health people in New Mexico. They worked really hard during COVID. They continue to work really hard. They're very short staffed. They have your health and my health at heart. But we, we, live, in a, we live in a county in which the outbreak of West Nile was just announced by the police department. Now, I have never in my life seen or could never imagine public health matters of consequence being announced by a public police department who specializes in public safety. Why is that the case? I would suggest it's the case because in New Mexico, despite lots of good work, um, there are major gaps in the provision of public health at the local level. Ellie Ben-Naim and myself were providing the community in Los Alamos with information about COVID on a regular basis. It's not like anybody at NMDOH or anybody else stepped in to do that. But in Oak Park, Illinois, where my sister lives, there's an Oak Park Village Public Health Authority that was providing similar information on a bi-weekly basis to the community. So what I'm saying is um, there are gaps. You can identify where the staffing gaps are, the infrastructure gaps are, laboratory gaps are, et cetera. You can cost these things. What I'm suggesting is 
invest in ways that are cost effective. Uh, but I, I promise you, at 100,000 deaths, it would still be wildly cost effective because you're talking about a few tens of millions to save X number of lives. You're not talking about billions of dollars, if, say, in New Mexico. Um, your point is very well taken, but I would say all of this is amenable to cost-effectiveness analysis. What do we need to invest in public health to save how many lives? And therefore, where's that break-in point um, to, to doing that in a way that's, um, that's clearly cost-effective? And I, I think it's, it's not that hard. You know, lawyers are used to, uh, Phil Gursky has always reminded me, lawyers are very used to putting a value on human life uh, in all these cases. But uh, when I mention it to people in the community, their eyes sometimes glaze over and say, well, that's not okay. How do you, how do, you do that? But there are, as I'm sure you know, tools of economic analysis that allow you to try to estimate the, the cost of a life saved, or what we call in global health, the cost of a disability-adjusted life year averted, right? And um, I'm only suggesting that we use sound analysis to decide, I repeat, um, what are the most critical investments in public health needed to deal with the public health issues we face today and to be prepared for the next big thing that might come along. And please go ahead. None, none of you are gonna get it. Please go ahead. You can, you, I, I think they, they need the mic for recording purposes. I really feel badly I can't threaten you with no summer, in, <laughs> no summer internship, okay. no job. Please go ahead. So you had referenced the impact of climate change on global health, and we've seen the kind of news reports of the malaria, et cetera, um, increasing or at least being present in the United States. From what you have seen, are we, um, is globally or as a nation, taking a, an appropriate uh, steps in terms of investing education, et cetera, to uh, kind of get ahead of that? Uh, before it happens. I'm, um, you know, I don't know intimately the work that's being done in Florida on public health or in Texas on public health. I know Maryland better because, you know, I lived in D.C. for many, many years. Uh, I'm somewhat concerned and somewhat skeptical because of the in environment within which we're operating now politically, in which science and public health have been demeaned so much by so many people. You have, and this is a fact, you know, you have a Surgeon General in Florida who has just announced, suggested to the population of Florida that they not be vaccinated with the new COVID vaccine because it's never been tested in people, and it's not gonna work against the new variant, and its um, <laughs> risks are greater than its potential benefits. So I think, um, I think people know well what to do. I had a good talk recently with the former chief state epidemiologist here about New Mexico. And New Mexico actually has a sound approach to West Nile, but I think there's these substantial gaps in communication and work at the local level. So I, I think um, I'm terribly concerned that the environment within which public pe health people are trying to do their work now is one that in at least half of the country will not um, um, be, be staffed, funded, resourced, and supported as necessary. And I think as a result, you know, we're all going to pay because, I mean, mosquitoes don't fly very far. 
and New Mexico is blessed not to have so many of them. But, you know, as you know uh, from COVID, I mean, you know, what happened in El Paso happens in southern New Mexico, right? If not in the rest of New Mexico, too. I can only repeat, nobody's an island. Uh, and uh, I think in this case, the federal structure of the United States profoundly uh, complicates addressing public health measures in a manner that the Dutch, the Danes, the Norwegians, the Finns, uh, uh, the France, who have very you know, centralized government, they don't have to deal with. And uh, I'm very concerned about it. I wish I could tell you otherwise. I hope you're wearing deed as we speak. <laughs> but don't get it on your clothes. Please, please go ahead. I'd be terribly insulted if you don't ask more questions. Please go ahead. Besides the politicians we elect, what else can we do in New Mexico to help with our nutrition status, our substance abuse, I mean, from your perspective as a public health person? So, um, you know, I think there's, there are a couple of things. One is, you know, politicians respond, including local ones, to the demands of their constituents. If, um, if a coalition of concerned citizens were to go to Chris Chandler, uh, were to go to the governor, and to um, lo lobby and express interest on behalf of A, B, C, or D, they are much more likely to respond to it than if a lobby of concerned citizens is not in touch with them. So I, I think what we need, and that, that's one. Two is, um, New Mexico is a bit of a backwater um, in many ways, though it's done very good work in some others. Uh, the new dean of the public health school at Yale, Megan Ranney, has done lots of work on the public health consequences of gun violence and taking a public health approach to gun violence. And she often cites, cites some of what goes on here, actually, as an example for other places. There's a lot of good work going on here. But in some other areas, it's a backwater. It's hard to attract to New Mexico. Um, the best and the brightest uh, from some bigger or more prestigious places. So I think another one is to try to bring into the New Mexico discussions best practice from wh whatever it is, from, from, from where it is. And Los Alamos, with all due respect, uh, is a place that has a very strong sense of itself and in many respects deeply believes that it knows better than others about what to do. And yet I think here we have a lot to learn and on the public health side, we basically have almost no local public health. We have no, basically no public health function in, in here. The state did a good job of collecting data um, and organizing a bit. Then you had to go to the state website, you had to go to the state website, you had to go to the state website. And they did lots of other good work as well. But I think, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, whether we like it or not, uh, everything is political. And politicians respond to what they think are the demands of their constituents. When you think back here to an event uh, in a school board, um, I would suggest that the school board listen to those who shouted the loudest, even though they were not in the majority on one important act that they took, uh, and that says something. So I think what you need to do is get a majority of people talking clearly, articulately on an evidence basis, lobbying politicians, uh, working on the basis that everything is political, and trying one's best. I think if the governor doesn't pass a one cent, uh, a leader 
tax on um, alcohol in a state that has the problems we have on, on uh, dr drunk driving related deaths. I think a, co a coalition of people from the, all over New Mexico should go and tell her, this is truly not okay. There's a lot of good stuff you've done on health. You talk about this a lot, but this is an abomination what's going on in New Mexico with respect to both the um, um, disability and illness, disability and deaths caused by alcohol consumption, as well as uh, drunk driving related disability, illness, disability and deaths. This isn't okay. Short of that, I think, I mean, that's, that's how people respond. So I think, I wish I had a, a better answer for you, but I think um, just as you would lobby for cleaning the trails, just as you would lobby for this, just as you would lobby for that, or X, Y, or Z in the schools, I think we need to bring together a broader coalition of people, especially at this time when science and public health are being so questioned, and make sure that our local and state elected officials understand we really do care about this stuff. Um, we want the kids to be in school. We don't want businesses to be shut down. Uh, we want the economy to keep moving. And therefore, it becomes even more fundamental that we take measures to ensure that we prevent these things before they occur, if we can, or address them as quickly as possible when they do. Um, you know, I wish, I wish I could tell you otherwise that uh, that's my um, trite but sincere, <laughs> sincere conclusion. Tyler, you're going to ask me something. I am. Don't make it too hard. Okay, I'll try. Um, you've alluded to teaching some of the principles or some of the philosophical foundations, and I think I was getting at least the impression that you're talking about two kids before they ever even get to college. Um, are you envisioning that there would be a practical and useful way to do this at the high school level, um, and and what would that what would that look like across the country? Yeah. The, so, uh, and let me start by saying so. Let's say houses of worship. In houses of worship like yours, there must be something in the Sunday school curriculum that talks about um, um, concern for people a concern for all people, a concern for the well-being of all people, a special concern for those who are marginalized, a special hope that we can do things both individually and collectively to help make their lives, help them enable themselves to, to rise up. I think it's important in the age in which we live to be sure that those lessons are globalized so that the students who are learning about um, poor kids, you know, learning that African-American kids uh, have a 15 times higher infant mortality rate, let's say if they're black than if they're white in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, or in Baltimore, Maryland, there's a single street where there's a 20 year gap in life expectancy between poor blacks in this part of town and better off white people in this side of town. It's fundamental, I think, that our, that our Sunday school kids learn that, but I think it's also important for them to become global in perspective and to see that these issues are universal and that our concerns as ethical uh, human beings should be universal as well. Um, at the high schools, um, you know, there I think um, you, one, one needs to look for places in the um, curriculum, for example, where um, civic education can be, can be um, globalized. You know, my son has uh, two Swedish au pairs, and it's unbelievable what they know about the world. And if you look at them, and look at American kids the same age, even among the most intelligent ones, there's just no comparison. 
the Swedes are global citizens, and most American kids are not. Um, and I mean, I'm not saying it's a perfect comparison. Um, I teach in the Netherlands, I teach in, in Norway, I teach in a bunch of different countries, and it's remarkable the extent to which their, the perspectives of many of their students is so much broader than even our very best students in the United States. So I think we should be trying, and I don't see how in a world as globalized and interdependent as this, we can be productive citizens in a competitive economy if our kids don't understand what the rest of the world is all about. So I think we should be looking, but in particular you could do things as some, there's a bunch of high schools in the United States that have global health affinity groups. It's often kids who think they wanna become uh, healthcare practitioners later, but um, many, you know, you look at all these science high schools like Thomas Jefferson in Fairfax, Virginia, or North Carolina School of Science and X. Most, many of these schools have global health affinity groups. They meet like any other extracurricular group. They get guest speakers. They sometimes have a project. Often they have a summer visit um, to, to go see uh, what it's like in Honduras or Guatemala. So I think there are a number of ways in which might do that. But the end game for me is to try to ensure that American students, when they enter the labor force, uh, have a much more global perspective than they have now, and a much greater appreciation for the marginality of people wherever they live than, than they don't have now. That would be my, my goal, and I think there's a number of ways in, in which one could uh, achieve it. He's gonna go offer me to Jennifer tomorrow morning to give a talk at the high school, which I actually do lots of, there are actually lots of high schools that do that. Yeah, I can envision like, um international affairs sort of class. Well, yeah, they almost all have, we used to have JCOWA, right? We used to have Junior Council on World Affairs. This was in Dayton, Ohio in the 60s. But they, they often still have clubs like that. And that yeah. was a big deal. And being an exchange student as I was in 1966, that's like the biggest deal you could ever imagine. You know, my first airplane ride was from Dayton, Ohio to the northern, what well, is San Francisco, but then on to the Northern Philippines. I'd never, I'd never really left home before. I'd gone to the Wisconsin Dells a couple of times. I'd gone to, I'd been to Kenosha, Wisconsin. That was, are you from Wisconsin? <laughs> yeah, I'd been, my grandfather was born in Kenosha. We went to Wisconsin Dells, that, that was it. Any other, uh, any other questions? Well, Tyler, I, uh, if not, I thank you again for honoring me with this opportunity to meet with uh, members of your church. I hope the talk helped to, uh, accomplish some of your desires for your usual aim to provoke people uh, in good ways. And I uh, look forward to seeing, uh, seeing all of you in the community. Thank you. Thank you so much, Richard. Really appreciate it.